Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 5 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. My name is Nick Garisco. You can find me on Instagram at Fantasy Law Guy. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show where I'll break down the rookie running backs. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let them all do it. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? I cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep trickling the ball down the field, boy. I saw it, son. I saw Hello? You play to win the game. Last year's rookie running back class, Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, David Montgomery, Ew, David. Devin Singletary, all made fantasy impacts, some larger than others. Daryl Henderson, Justice Hill, Damian Harris, they were all typically drafted in fantasy leagues as well, but they did not make any noise as rookies. But I think it's safe to say every year there are rookie running backs that become valuable assets in the fantasy football world. And in Dynasty Leagues or Keeper Leagues, which a lot of you are probably playing in, the impact of rookie running backs goes even further than their contributions in year one. So today we're going to focus on this year's rookie running back class from a traditional season-long redraft league perspective. As you all know, I normally like to go over the breaking fantasy news of the day first, but there's actually no breaking fantasy news to evaluate today because I'm not really considering the Washington Redskins announcing they will change their team name related to fantasy football. For what it's worth, the Vegas odds on favorites for that team name are the Red Tails, the Generals, and the Presidents. But without any breaking fantasy news, I did want to take a moment to address COVID and how I think it's going to impact the season. That's actually the number one question I've received When I've told people that I'm starting a fantasy football podcast, they all say, well, is there going to be a season? And I, like the rest of you, am waiting for a COVID update. But I'll give my thoughts on it nonetheless. Training camp is supposed to start in two weeks, and I I just can't imagine that that's going to happen. I'm predicting that they push training camp back and they shorten it because I think the NFL and the NFLPA will likely agree to have maybe one preseason game. I think two at the absolute max. I do think there will be a preseason game, and I think that it will take place when week four or week three of the preseason was going to be, like the last week in August. I think you definitely have to give 14 days before opening kickoff, which is September 10th, when the Texans visit the Chiefs on Thursday night. You have to give 14 days before that date for the preseason game in case the games go poorly and the players do contract COVID. So they need at least 14 days probably to quarantine to be ready for week one, which I think is of utmost importance to the NFL. So I'm expecting shortened training camps to start probably about a month from now, probably mid-August, and then one preseason game, which will probably be in the last weekend of August. Maybe they'll keep preseason week three as scheduled and then the NFL will probably shoot for maintaining its schedule on time albeit with very few fans in the stadiums if any I'm optimistic that there will be NFL football this fall but I'm having a tougher time believing fans will actually be in the stadiums a few stadiums have given numbers for how many fans they expect in the stands the Ravens have said 14,000 the Jacksonville Jaguars have said they'll fill their stadium at 25% capacity, so apparently they're not making any COVID changes. But the good news is that we'll see far fewer training camp injuries and preseason injuries because there won't be much of a preseason. So you're not going to have a lot of these players tear the ACLs in preseason, and then you've already had your draft, and then you end up getting screwed for the regular season. But the bad news... Conversely, is that I'm guessing we're going to get a lot more injuries in season, right? Because I think players are going to be out of shape. And even if they're not out of shape, I think their bodies 
are not going to be adjusted to the normal seasoning. They're not going to be in the normal routine that they normally are. So I'm not a doctor, but my assumption is that this will inevitably lead to more muscle pulls and cramps and even possibly more serious injuries. This is not to even mention that tons of fantasy-relevant players who are inevitably going to miss a game or two because of COVID and the corresponding quarantining that results from it. So my advice is to keep your drafts late and to definitely increase your IR spots by maybe one or maybe even two. Every season is unpredictable, but this is going to be an especially peculiar season. Today's answer question comes from at C. Olson. He asks, I can keep Leonard Fournette and give up my third round pick, or I can keep Melvin Gordon and give up my fifth rounder. Who would you keep? I would keep Melvin Gordon, mainly because of the two-round discount, and that jump from round three to round five is pretty substantial, I mean, especially if it's like a 12-team league or if it's an early third-round pick. That's, that's unclear here, but I'm kind of down on Leonard Fournette this year. I loved him last year, and I think if you followed my draft guide, Fournette was probably your third-round pick last year. I know he was mine in pretty much every league I was in. But I'm pretty much on full fade this year for Leonard Fournette just because there's so many warning signs. I'm going to begin this by talking about his arguably his biggest positive, arguably his only positive. And that's we have to see positive touchdown regression from Leonard Fournette. Fournette scored like three times on around 350 touches last season. I think his touchdown expectation based on running backs getting the same touches in the same spot, Fournette should have had about nine touchdowns last year. According to Mike Clay of ESPN, his ODOT, or his OTD rate was 9.3. So that's how many touchdowns he arguably should have had last year, and he only scored three times. That would have completely changed his fantasy outlook, by the way. He would have been probably a top six, top five running back there. Another point speaking to this is Ian Hartitz of Pro Football Focus. He says, running backs with more touches than Leonard Fournette in 2019, two. Only two running backs had more touches than Fournette. Running backs with more touchdowns than Little Fournette, 50. So only two running backs had more touches than Fournette last season, but there were 50 more running backs with more touchdowns. That's a crazy stat right there. And then another stat here uh, by Kate Madzoik. I apologize for the last name botching, which is likely not the correct pronunciation, but she's at FF Ball Blast, Ball Blast Fantasy. She says that Lennon Fournette's touchdown rate was 1.1%. So for every carry that he got, he had a 1.1% chance to score. That's obviously going to lead to positive touchdown regression there. And touchdowns are pretty important. However, there are a bunch of red flags as well for Lennon Fournette. And these, this, these are the arguments that I tend to lean towards when I'm trying to evaluate Fournette. There's a lot of uncertainty there because of new offensive coordinator Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden is historically pass-happy. And Lionel Fournette's playing for a very bad team. The Jaguars were bad last year, but this year their over-under is 4.5 wins, lowest in the league. So they are favorites to land the number one overall pick in the draft. And it could be to the point where they're actively tanking for Trevor Lawrence. There were rumors that were substantiated that Leno Fournette was on the trade block during the NFL draft. So it's not crazy to think that if the Jags are sitting there near the trade deadline and they're pretty much tanking for Trevor Lawrence and they're one and six or something like that, that they're going to ship Leno Fournette off for, I don't know, a seventh round pick or maybe even a draft swap. You may be thinking right now, if you're optimistic about Fournette, you may be thinking, well, his team sucks so badly that that's good because Fournette caught a ton of passes last year, and he'll probably do that again, just dump off passes. He did. He was definitely utilized a lot more than he had a career high in pretty much all receiving numbers last year. He had 76 catches on 100 targets, smashing his career highs. But that's because the Jaguars had no other competition as a pass-catching running back on the roster. The Jaguars have done things to 
rectify this situation. LaVisca Chanel, he played for Colorado, and they drafted him pick 42 overall, the Jaguars did. One of the top offensive weapon types. Very powerful wide receiver in college. He was very explosive with the ball. Pro football focus, only 25% of his targets traveled beyond 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. And they could definitely plan to deploy him as a wildcat runner. He may see some goal line situations, but mainly they will likely deploy him as a third-round running back. And he'll likely catch, I don't know, at least 32, 40 passes this year. And that'll take away from Leonard Fournette. Chris Thompson was also signed by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And that's important because, although he's kind of faded into oblivion over the years, or the last two years at least, he has had his spurts under Jay Gruden. He was coached by Jay Gruden, the new offensive coordinator, for five seasons. So the fact that Jay Gruden brought in familiar blood to come in there kind of speaks to the idea that he's going to take passing downs from Leonard Fournette. And Luna Fournette, even though he did catch a lot of passes last year, he was not very efficient with them. He ranked 181st out of 199 qualifiers in fantasy points per target in 2019. And Jay Moyer, at Jay Moyer FB, he works for Matt Waldman Film Study, mattwaldmanrsvp.com. He says, Jay Gruden's lead ball carrier has never averaged more than two targets per game. So we are definitely going to expect far fewer targets, receptions, receiving yards from Leonard Fournette next season. I think that's going to take a substantial chunk out of his fantasy production, especially, like I mentioned, because the Jaguars are going to be so pathetic that they're always going to be trailing. And in the second half of games, they're going to have to go away from Leonard Fournette. And Fournette will be much more game script dependent If he's not going to be playing all the passing downs, he was last season. So a bunch of negative game scripts. Game flow will likely not be his friend. And that's even if he's on the roster after the trade deadline. Because again, the Jaguars have looked to trade him. So there's a ton of uncertainty here. And I haven't even mentioned what's arguably the best point. And this is no analyst is really, I don't know about no analyst. That might be strong to say, but a lot of experts are not talking about Fournette's biggest bugaboo, I would say. And that's his health. Going into last season, the only reason Fournette was available in round three is because he was a massive health risk. And yes, he stayed healthy last year, but that was the first time he's really done so in quite some time. Tom Kislingberry, at Tom Kislingberry on Twitter, did a great job of speaking out about this. He said that, Last year was the highest volume Leonard Fournette has ever seen in college at the NFL. 341 touches last year, his highest in six years of college and NFL, and that was 12th most among running backs in the last five seasons. Look at the history of those guys with 300-plus touches. It's not pretty. They rarely manage to do it year after year. And with Leonard Fournette's history of injuries, it seems doubtful that it will happen again. You know, that's why I wouldn't want to keep Lennon Fournette with a third-round pick, but Melvin Gordon's the other, other side of this coin. I think the Broncos have a better team than the Jaguars. They have a better offensive line. Mike Munchak, great offensive line coach. I think the narrative that Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon are going to be used in tandem is a little overblown. I know Mike Kleiss, Broncos beat writer, said that offensive Pat, Corn- uh, Pat Shermer said that we intend to use both of them. And yeah, I think Philip Lindsay will be used just more as a change of pace back. Philip Lindsay's never proven to be a very efficient uh, receiver out of the backfield. I think Gordon will definitely get passing downs. Gordon will likely get goal line carries. I don't think the Broncos were satisfied with Philip Lindsay last season. I think they acquired Gordon to be more of the guy. Philip Lindsay, to me, rings true as a change of pace running back. I mean, that, that's what he is. I think, he's, I think he's an underrated talent, but I think he's proven that he's not going to get the bulk of the carries here. And Melvin Gordon had a slow start after holding out last season, but he was much better weeks 9 through 17. 118 carries, 500 yards, 7 touchdowns, 4.2 yards a carry. That was his final eight games. In his first four games, he was 44 for 112 and one touchdown, only 2.5 yards a carry. His final eight games, he averaged 18.0. 
1-1 points per game. And that would have ranked him as the RB9 if you extrapolate his final eight games over a full season. So once he shook off the holdout rust, Melvin Gordon, top 10 running back. Derek Brown at Debro underscore FFB. He works for FTN. He did a good job quantifying this on Twitter about Pat Shermer's, that's offense coordinators, his RB1s were top six in RB1 touch shares for seven of the last 11 years as head coach and offensive coordinator. They've received on average between 69.7 and 83.2% of the touches out of the backfield. And last year, Denver ranked 25th in offensive pace, and Pat Shermer with the New York Giants. The last two years, the Giants were 10th in pace. So it's going to be a more fast-paced offense. I think it'll be a better offense. And to be honest, I mean, Lionel Fournette's going higher than Melvin Gordon in drafts. Fournette's going as RB15. Gordon's going as around RB20. I would actually rather Gordon over Fournette this year if you take out draft cost. So the fact that you're getting a two-round discount to keep Melvin Gordon, I'm definitely getting Gordon here. Oh, and by the way, you should definitely ask your commissioner to abolish that stupid system where you give up whatever draft pick you spent on the player you're keeping. The system makes no sense. I hate, hate, hate when I see leagues who do keepers this way. It just screws up the entire any parody of the league. And there's just no great fair way to do draft order with it. And the, the argument is always, oh, well, we'd like to award people who draft really well. And that's just so stupid because you're already they're already rewarded by being able to use that great player that they drafted and they got great value on nonetheless. So maybe I should have saved this for the two-minute warning rant later this week, but there are plenty better ways to do keepers in your league. So please inquire and I'll set up a system that is much more fair and fun. And FYI, guys, you can follow me at Fantasy Law Guy and pose your fantasy questions and I'll be happy to answer them on this show. All right, let's get started with the rookie running backs. The consensus top-rated rookie running back, Clyde Edwards-Elaire. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne at the Prince of Bel-Air. Out of LSU, his number 32 overall pick in the 2020 draft by the Kansas City Chiefs, 5'7", 207. He was a one-year starter at LSU. He scored 16 touchdowns and rushed for 1,400 yards. 6.6 yards a clip in the greatest college offense we have ever seen. He was the fourth highest graded college running back by Pro Football Focus. And he did a ton of damage in the receiving game. He reminds me a lot of old Saints running back Pierre Thomas in the screen game. He's got a really low center of gravity. He's got great balance. And he runs much tougher than his size. And like Pierre Thomas, Clyde Edward Hilaire is not very fast. He doesn't have the athletic traits that you would typically find in round one. But he was the first running back off the board nonetheless. The Chiefs loved him. And he landed in such a great situation. I mean, Chiefs general manager Brett Veach said that the pick reminds him of Brian Westbrook. And obviously Westbrook was a very strong option under Andy Reid in Philly because he was so elite as a receiver out of the backfield. And that's exactly what Clyde can give you. And Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy said that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had some special traits and he has great work ethic, but he also hyped up Damian Williams, even suggesting that Williams might open the season as the starter. And Edwards-Hilaire definitely has RB1 upside as a rookie in a Patrick Mahomes-led offense. But Damian Williams is definitely... A thorn in his side, right? His final five games, Damian Williams, this is two regular season games and three playoff games, 27.7 points, 19.9 points, and 29.3 points. Those were his outings in the three playoff games, including a great Super Bowl where he arguably could have been an MVP. He put up 122.5 fantasy points in that five-game stretch, 24.5 points per game. That would have ranked RB2 behind only Christian McCaffrey. On the other hand, Damian Williams was kind of an all-or-nothing type of running back. He was kind of a home run hitter. 
Michelle Madzoik at Ball Blastum and Ball Blast Fantasy. She said that Damian Williams gained nearly 40% of his total rushing yards on three carries during the 2019 regular season. So Clyde definitely has huge upside. He does have to fend off Damian Williams. The Chiefs returned five of five starters on the offensive line. But like I just mentioned, we've seen Damian Williams put up top three running back numbers in the final stretch of games in the last two seasons, including playoffs. That was the second year's, year in a row that he had a great finish. I think one concern with rookie running backs with an elite quarterback like Pat Mahomes is pass protection. I do think it's overblown, but coaches care about that kind of thing. Uh, Tom Kisslingberry, he tweeted that the Chiefs running backs last season combined for 94 pass blocking snaps in the regular season, which is only about six a game. And that's combined for all their running backs. And Damian Williams was the running back with the most pass blocking snaps with only 33 snaps in pass protection. That's about two a game. So Kisslingberry does a good job kind of minimizing the importance of pass protection. But still, I do think coaches kind of care about that kind of thing. It was actually Eric Bieniemy, their offense coordinator, didn't mention it in one of his press conferences. But I also think this is worth noting because – None of the analysts are really, none of the experts are really talking about the possibility of Damian Williams kind of usurping a goal line role from Clyde. I think that's actually a bigger concern than the pass blocking because Damian Williams, whether you like him or not, he is a nose for the end zone. He's closed out the last two seasons as a touchdown machine, and he's done really well inside the red area. He's also bigger than Clyde Edwards Elaire. He's 5'11, 225. And the fact that I'm the only one bringing this up makes me feel like I'm missing an obvious here. But I do find it strange that I never see it discussed among the experts in the industry. It would be pretty devastating if Clyde edwards Hilaire did all the work between the 20s and then Damian Williams was put inside the 10 to punch it in in, again, this high-potent Patrick Mahomes-led offense where theoretically the running back could have double-digit touchdown scoring potential. So Graham Barfield also tweeted, as another way of looking at things, if you're not convinced Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is the rookie RB1, just step back and take a 1,000-foot level view. Number one, Andy Reid hasn't invested in a running back like this since LaShawn McCoy in 2009, when he was drafted 53 overall. And number two, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire gets to play with Patrick M.F. Mahomes. So still, I definitely think we're getting a rotation of sorts to open the season. I mean, Clyde is one of those picks where he's more attractive in certain leagues, keeper leagues, dynasty leagues, obviously. But even in season-long redraft leagues where you kind of play in a casual office league and maybe you make the postseason every year and you kind of can afford to start slow. Or maybe it's one of those 10-team leagues that like allows like six teams in their playoffs. And you typically get into the playoffs, that's not a huge concern for you. You're just going for the ship. Then I think that's a scenario where you can take this kind of risk, where you can draft Clyde with more confidence. Because you might get into a situation where he does start slow, where Damian Williams is the starter, or they are at least splitting carries from the get-go, especially with a limited COVID-19 offseason. Nevertheless, Clyde edwards Layers, he's going at RB16. He's got a 34 overall uh, ADP on ESPN. And I think his FFPC average draft position in high-stakes expert leagues is 21st. So I think we're going to see his average draft position push up closer to that range as the offseason progresses. I think more people, the public, will be more excited about edwards Layer, And that will kind of match the expert excitement here. I think edwards Layer is going to be a very popular target at the round two and three turn, especially in 12-team leagues, because I think teams with pick one are going to feel mighty comfortable with Christian McCaffrey, and they're going to feel like they can take more of a gamble on their running back two or running back three, even if they start with three open with three running backs. And I've seen a lot of experts try to hedge their bets by drafting Clyde in round two or three and then Damian Williams in round seven. That's another sound strategy, especially in best ball formats. So anyway, let's move on to the next one. This is Jonathan Taylor. So it wasn't really widely debated by many draft analysts and draft nicks out there that 
Jonathan Taylor was the best running back as a pure rusher coming out this year. He destroyed consistently on the ground at Wisconsin for several years. He averaged 2,000 rushing yards in his three seasons at Wisconsin. That's averaged 2,000 rushing yards, not had 2,000 rushing yards. He averaged 2,000 rushing yards in three seasons at Wisconsin. He ran a 4 3 9, 40 at the NFL Combine, 226 pounds, elite testing at the NFL Combine, 96 percentile adjusted spark athleticism. And the Colts were obviously very impressed. GM Chris Ballard traded up for him in April's draft. It was their second pick, but they did not have a first-round pick. They spent their first pick in the second round on Michael Pittman. And then I guess they felt like they had to have Jonathan Taylor, so they traded up for him. There are two primary concerns with Jonathan Taylor. First, it seems like Taylor is not really going to be involved in the passing game much. He wasn't really utilized as a pass catcher at Wisconsin. He had eight catches in both of his first two seasons. And then he had 26 catches last season. But as Evan Silva on Establish the Run noted, Jonathan Taylor dropped eight of 50 catchable targets last year. And he gained next to no pass blocking experience in his college career. And Taylor also fumbled 18 times in three seasons with the Badgers. But this is such a talented runner on a team that definitely runs the, run the ball with an aging Phillip Rivers. And they can run the ball, the Colts can. And this offensive line is one of the best in, in the NFL. I mean, Anthony Costanzo, left tackle. Quentin Nelson, one of the best guards in the league. Ryan Kelly at center. I mean, that left side of the offensive line is three potential pro bowlers right there. Mark Lewinsky is probably the weakest lineman on that core. And he's still a much better run blocker than pass protector. And then Braden Smith at right tackle is also good. The Colts have five of five quality starters. And what's interesting about the Colts offensive line is when I was game logging, I noticed that the Colts... Uh, were the only offensive line that their five starters made 80 of a possible 80 starts. So they started and finished the season with the same, not only did they start and finish the season with the same five guys, but none of them missed the game. And that is a feat that occurs maybe once or twice every three years, since I've been tracking at least. So we may experience some health regression from that standpoint, but nevertheless, The Colts' offensive line is definitely one you want to be running behind. And Jonathan Taylor definitely has the talent to do it. He rushed his 150.6 rushing yards a game is the most of all Power 5 running backs in the last two decades. 150 rushing yards a game. That's by Scott Barrett of FantasyPoints.com. And the main reason, though, that Jonathan Taylor is not getting a ton of fantasy hype among all the experts is because he's going to be competing for touches, at least initially, with Marlon Mack on early downs. And Naeem Hines on passing downs. And the Hines thing could be, at least for the foreseeable future, it could be an all-year thing. Again, Taylor was not really used much at Wisconsin in the passing game. Marlon Mack last year, just to give some perspective, RB22 on 13 points per game in PPR formats on 14 games last year. He he had a total lack of usage in the passing game as well, and he was one of the most game script dependent players in all of fantasy football. When the Colts win, Mack typically plays really well. They feed him, but when they're trailing, Mack is subbed out for passing game contributors. And the Colts do show reliance on him when they when the score permits, but Mac is not really a supreme talent. He kind of gets what's blocked, which can be a lot behind this offensive line, but Mac's also entering the final year of his contract, and he was the 28th highest graded running back pro, pro, pro football focus. So overall, he's kind of a pedestrian talent who gets what's blocked. Colts coach Frank Wright envisions second rounder Jonathan Taylor and Marlon Mack serving as a one-two punch, he said. So that's never a good sign. And Colts offensive coordinator also said the running back room is a 1-1 punch with Marlon Mack and Jonathan Taylor. And Colts Frank Wright later admitted that there's definitely inherent respect for the starter returning when he was asked about the team's backfield and specifically Marlon Mack. That's not ideal. That doesn't suggest that Jonathan Taylor is just going to come right in and start immediately and get the Bells Cows work. So Wright and company have consistently mentioned that all three Ball carriers, Jonathan Taylor, Naheem Hines, and Marlon Mack consistently mention them when asked about their running back situation. And then Athletics' Zach Kiefer expects Naheem Hines, he's a Colts beat writer, to 
get plenty more action in the offseason. And Frank Reich even suggested that it wouldn't surprise me if there's a game this season that Naheem Hines has 10 catches. And they're definitely pumping up Naeem Hines' role now that Phillip Rivers is in town because Rivers obviously loves to pepper his running backs with short passes like he did with Austin Eckler. And a lot of people are assuming that Naeem Hines is going to take that pass-catching role for the Colts, leaving Jonathan Taylor on the bench for obvious passing downs. And Mike Clay of ESPN.com said that with the way the Colts are pumping up Naeem Hines' role, it's going to be extremely tough for Jonathan Taylor to pay off his second round ADP. Now, that was back in the time back in the day when Jonathan Taylor had a second round ADP. Now he does not. He slipped to kind of early round four. And Mike Clay's right though. I mean, if the Colts have a three-way running back by committee split, at least early on, Jonathan Taylor is gonna have some lines where it's like 10 carries, 50 rushing yards, zero touchdowns, five, five, six fantasy points. But on the other end of the spectrum, the upside of Jonathan Taylor is tremendous. I mean, what if just hypothetical scenario, first padded practice, whenever that may be, he gets out there and he looks like totally superior to Marlon Mack. And the culture is like, okay, screw veteran deference. Let's ride with Taylor as our bell cow. You know, they may see Jonathan Taylor in action and say, you know, holy heck, I mean, we have no choice. Then you're looking at an Ezekiel Elliott type rookie year, whereas Zeke went as a first round pick in fantasy drafts as a rookie and he lived up to it in a major way. I think he led the league in rushing. He was a top five running back as a rookie. And that was without a bunch of receiving work. He probably caught, what, 30 passes that year? It was mainly volume, rushing yards, and rushing touchdowns weekly. So on that end, it makes Jonathan Taylor's RB24 ADP look very cost-friendly, very affordable. You know, Again, he's going FFPC. He's going 39 overall RB20. And right now in ESPN, he's ranked 55 overall RB24. So from that end of the spectrum, his cost is affordable. I'd rather, you're kind of getting into a Clyde Edwards-Hilaire situation where he might start slow, but I'd rather take the upside on Jonathan Taylor than a guy like Leonard Fournette, who we've already spoken about, where and Fournette's being drafted higher. So I do get why experts are off Taylor, why some of them are. Uh, the lack of receiving usage will definitely hurt. He'll be a game script dependent like Marlon Mack was, but I think Taylor will be subbed out on passing downs, but I just think Taylor is going to run circles around Marlon Mack on the ground. And that's what Indy expects of him. So moving on, DeAndre Swift. He's going as RB23 right next to, I believe they're one spot apart on ESPN rankings, DeAndre Swift and Jonathan Taylor. So the Lions selected DeAndre Swift out of UGA, number 35 overall, and he played initially behind Nick Chubb and Tony, Mich- Tony Michelle, Sony Michelle initially at Georgia. And Georgia's been, just been such a factory of running backs now, by the way. I mean, everyone talks about LSU being DBU. Georgia, and I guess Alabama too, so many great talents, NFL talents at running back. But anyway, Swift, pretty pretty athletic. He's kind of the polar opposite of Jonathan Taylor in terms of skill set, where he wins as a receiver. And Georgia catered to Swift's strength as a receiver. They moved him all over the formation to kind of get him in space. Pro Football Focus charged him with only three drops across 73 career receptions, and he averaged 9.1 yards a catch, which is... Pretty elite. So it's interesting to see that in ESPN rankings because he's kind of the polar opposite skill set of Jonathan Taylor that they're going right back to back. 54 overall and 55 overall. I think Jonathan Taylor is getting more hype from the experts in the industry. So I I mentioned him first, but Swift does have his fans out there. And Detroit was a surprisingly good offense last year when Matt Stafford was healthy for eight games. They were shockingly aggressive when airing it out, but with Stafford... They led the NFL in air yards per attempt. So when they were throwing, they were throwing downfield. They were super aggressive. But I think it's pretty clear that the Lions do want to run the ball. I mean, Matt Patricia is your typical old-school conservative coach who loves to establish the run. They couldn't do it last year. Carry on Johnson's efficiency. Carry on my wayward son. Took a huge hit. You know, he averaged 5.4 yards a carry in 2018. And then in 2019, it was kind of an injury-plague season. He had like one good game. 
He averaged 3.6 yards a carry for the season. His good game, he, he rushed for 120 in the score against the Chiefs in like week four or five, but that was about it. And now Carrion's had two injury play seasons as for his NFL career. That's it. He's shown flashes, but he missed eight games last year with the knee injury. And when he came back, he was kind of in this rotation with Bo Scarborough. And the Lions have definitely shown an interest in using Carrion Johnson in a rotation with lesser backs, including guys like Ty Johnson and you know J.D. McKissick. And that was after they brought in C.J. Anderson and after they cut Theo Reddick. Still, Carrion could not get a full workload there. So Chris Burke, who covers the Lions of the Athletic at Chris Burke NFL, he says Swift and Johnson should be on the field a lot, although Swift's ability in the passing game might tip the scales in his direction. Don't sleep on Bo Scarborough, though. This coaching staff really wants at least three reliable backs. So that sounds like a fantasy nightmare running back by committee. I think the worst-case scenario for Swift is he splits work with carry-on on early downs. Swift does get the passing downs because I don't think carry-on Johnson or Bo Scarborough is going to be able to handle that. But then Swift gets pulled on goal lines for carry-on or even the bigger back, Bo Scarborough. It might be a situation where you just want to avoid altogether. Daryl Bevel, the running back targets in his last five seasons are not great and he's offensive coordinator there in 2019 with Detroit the running back received running backs totally received 59 targets it was 58 in Seattle when Daryl Bevel was with Seattle it was 89 in 2016 with Seattle it was 79 in 2015 and it was 72 in 2014 these are total targets for all of their running backs not just one and that stat was produced by Anthony Amico at Amixta. FTN, he works for FTN. And on the other hand of the spectrum, David Gautiari of Guru Fantasy World, he tweeted, do you think DeAndre Swift could hit 11 carries per game as a rookie in an offense that gave running backs 22 carries per game last year? So theoretically, yes. What about 50 receptions in an offense that was top five in passing yards with Matt Stafford at quarterback? Okay, yeah, maybe I could see that. And then he says, because that's what Miles Sanders did last year, and he was RB15. And I'll remind y'all that DeAndre Swift is going RB23 in ESPN drafts and FFPC drafts, which is historically running back heavy, 57th overall, RB28. So some nice, interesting viewpoints there by two experts. Cam Akers is the next guy on the board, next rookie running back here. The Rams selected Florida State running back. Cam Akers with the 52nd overall pick. And the story of Cam Akers was that he had to run behind a painful Florida State offense. They were horrible outside of Akers himself. Pro Football Focus, 3.9 of his 4.9 yards per carry came after contact. And per Graham Barfield, of the worst worst blocking disadvantages in college football over the last five seasons, this is yards blocked per rushing attempt, Cam Akers was last. Worst blocking disadvantage in college football over the last five seasons. Among all college running backs that he studied, Cam Akers was last. Yards blocked per rushing attempts, 0.57. 0.57 yards blocked by the offensive line per rushing attempts. So yeah, Cam Akers had nothing to work with. Here's another one. Austin Gale at PFF underscore Austin Gale. Cam Akers is the only college football running back with or FBS running back with 300 carries in 2018 and 2019 that was contacted at or behind the line of scrimmage on more than 50% of his carries in the two-year span. So contacted at or behind the line of scrimmage in 50% or more of his carries in a two-year span. That's crazy. So yeah, Cam Akers had nothing to work with. And unfortunately for the Rams, or for Akers himself, the Rams' offensive line is nothing to work with. They have one of the worst offensive lines in the league, and... I think they return all five of their starters, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Maybe the continuity will help, but the interior offensive line there is just a total mess. Last season, Todd Gurley was extremely inefficient behind that offensive line, and he was barely used in the receiving game. He was used far less than he had. Maybe that was because of the chronic knee and arthritis, arthritis issues, but he was not getting anything other than what was blocked from behind a Rams offensive line that severely declined and was not opening up a lot of holes. Luckily for Gurley, what salvaged his season was 14 touchdowns, all of which came in the red zone. So that is proof that 
the Rams' offense can still score. And unfortunately, well, I should say fortunately, K-Maker's skill set projects him with three down upside, but he'll have to compete with both Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown this upcoming season. So Gurley's, Gurley's out. Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown are there. That's not much. I think K-Maker's definitely has the athleticism to move ahead of both of them in, in camp or in the limited preseason. But Sean McVay has given the typical coach speak that says, we feel we've got three really good backs when discussing the Rams' backfield. So take that for what you will. Another interesting fact of note is that this comes from Hayden Winks of Roto World, at Hayden Winks. He said Todd Gurley led all NFL running backs with 115 pass-blocking snaps last season. And if Cam Akers is going to establish himself as a true workhorse like Gurley, then he will have to prove better than Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown in pass protection. But Akers has a very big leg up on Henderson because Akers was third in FBS in pass pro reps last season, while Henderson only saw six pass protection reps as a rookie. So Cam Akers had the third most pass blocking reps among 264 running backs last season in college football. So definitely advantage Akers there. Akers ADP right now, RB28, 66 overall, FFPC 53.5 overall is RB23 there. So he's, the experts view him a little more favorably than mainstream sites. The running backs right near Akers in ESPN ranking, Tariq Cohen, Keyshawn Vaughn, Ronald Jones, Daryl Henderson, Carrion Johnson. I would much prefer Akers over them. So next would be J.K. Dobbins. You know, I've already broken him down. I will note that his ESPN rank has gone up from when I last spoke about him. Uh, It was 123 when I mentioned that obviously he's a great value there. Uh, And I kind of made fun or I poked fun at the ranking. Now he's at 91 overall in ESPN, RB39. So he's a little more expensive, but still in FFPC, J.K. Dobbins is going 69th overall, RB30. So there's still a gap there between high stakes leagues and ESPN rankings. So we will see if the public tries or the or the experts at ESPN try to mend that gap. But if you want my full breakdown on J.K. Dobbins, go check it out on episode four, the episode right before this one. Tampa Bay Buccaneers running back Keyshawn Vaughn, the 76th pick, and he's out of Vanderbilt. And he had back-to-back 1,000 rushing yard seasons which I imagine is difficult to do in the SEC when you play for Vanderbilt. Uh, He's good enough to play on passing downs. He profiles best as a complimentary runner in the NFL. And his primary knocks are his 41st percentile in Joseph Spark athleticism. Ronald Jones is faster than he is, and he's going to have to compete with Ronald Jones for touches. But I would say Vaughn definitely found an excellent first-year landing spot and which projects to be a potent offense with Tom Brady. All he's really competing with is Ronald Jones, at least for now. And Ronald Jones, former second-round pick, he couldn't separate from Peyton Barber until the second half of the season. And he's just such a jag back, you know, just another guy. Jones improved as a sophomore, but the Bucs still don't trust him in pass protection. He permitted a sack, two hits, and five hurries on only 49 pass-blocking snaps. And Tom Brady... And coaches with Tom Brady have always been a kind of a sticklers for having a running back who can protect, having a running back who can do damage in the receiving game, do all the right things as a pass catcher like James White was for Tom Brady, that security blanket. I don't think Ronald Jones projects to be that guy. I don't think he's going away completely, but I think Keyshawn Vaughn has a better chance to play on passing downs than Ronald Jones does. Jason Litt, Tampa Bay Buccaneers GM, gave conflicting reports as most coaches seem to do with their running backs. He says the idea is to get Vaughn here and see what he does best. We know that he's got good speed. We know that he can catch the ball. We know that he's good in space. He's been very productive there. He's very capable of playing on all three downs, so you can't have too many good backs. And then he also said, of course, that we have more faith than ever in Ronald Jones. So very cliche stuff. I find it more telling that Buccaneers coach Bruce Arians, when he was asked about adding free agent running back Devonta Freeman, he, his answer was, if his price tag was reasonable. He added, he's asking for a lot of money, and we don't have a lot of money. So basically, he admitted that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were not sold 
on their running back tandem and that they were looking for running back help in the sense of Devonta Freeman. And I think the door is open for Freeman to maybe sign with them later on in the offseason. I could see Devonta Freeman being that preferred passing down back. For now, however, I think I'd prefer Keyshawn Vaughn to Ronald Jones. That's kind of going against the grain of what most experts think what most experts think and what they have him ranked. But I feel like we just kind of know what Ronald Jones is and we know his limitations. And to me, Ronald Jones really his playing style, he's more of a change of pace back where he can come in and give you a you know, maybe a home run. He's a home run threat, but you know, when he's not hitting home runs, he's averaging three yards a carry. So I think with Ronald Jones, your best case is an inconsistent running back with the occasional burst or big play. But you never know when that's going to be. You're never going to know when to start him. I think he's going to get subbed out on passing downs, which is big with Tom Brady. With Keyshawn Vaughn, there's an element of mystery here. There's, there's an element of surprise. He could totally be a bust, and he could never see the field. Maybe Tom Brady doesn't trust the rookie. But he could also be the lead back and catching passes from Tom Brady by the end of the season. And Tom Brady loves that hurry-up offense. And when they get in the red zone, they might not want to have time to sub in a goal line back. They might keep that pass catching down running back on the field. So that creates touchdown potential. So I like Keyshawn Vaughn. He's not somebody I'm aggressively reaching for in drafts, and neither, nor am I doing that with Ronald Jones. But if I had to pick between the both the two of them, but even then I have a lot of hesitation because I would not be surprised if the Buccaneers do add a running back like Lamar Miller or Devonta Freeman from free agency. So let's talk about Zach Moss now. Zach Moss arrived in Buffalo. as the 86th overall pick. He set a bunch of school records at Utah. He had 4,167 rushing yards, 712 carries at Utah, and he had 41 touchdowns at Utah. So great career records for a Utah running back there. And he lacks game-breaking speed. He ran a 4.65 in the 40-yard dash. Uh, But he did hold his own in the passing game, and that's significant here because that gives him upside if Devin Singletary were to get hurt. Moss did catch 65 balls over his final three college seasons he's also pro football Focus's number one rated rookie running back last season or he was graded as the number one running back last season by pff the story of devin singletary last year is that he was great singletary you know he was limited touches weeks one and two hamstring injury sidelined until week seven week nine singletary kind of took over the clear lead back duty over frank gore who's kind of a plotter at this point in his career and he registered 20-plus touches four times over the second half of the year. And Singletary broke a ton of tackles, and he benefited from the threat of Josh Allen running, but he was siphoned at the goal line often by Josh Allen and Frank Gore. And that's significant here because beat writers for Buffalo have projected, and many fantasy experts have assumed, that Zach Moss has been drafted to take over that Frank Gore role. 8 to 10 carries per game, and the Bills' preferred goal line and short yardage back. So Gore paced the team last season with 18 carries inside the 10-yard line. This is per Nick Menzio of Roto World. And he says that Moss needs to be on fantasy radars, not only because of that, but also in the later rounds, because if Devin Singletary were to go down, all of a sudden you have Zach Moss as a bell cow back on a run-heavy offense, which is Buffalo. Good offensive line. Believe they turn return five five offensive line starters. The only issue, I would say, the only snag is that Josh Allen does steal a lot of those touchdowns. Allen has actually led Buffalo inside the ten in carries in the last two years. He's had twenty two of the sixty three carries inside the ten, and he scored thir- on thirteen touchdowns. Thirteen touchdowns rushing. So that's definitely a damper on the outlook for Zach Moss. Is that even if they get him to the goal line? Allen might whap the touchdown. However, Michelle Madzoik at Ball Blastum refutes that slightly. She says four of Josh Allen's rushing touchdowns came after Frank Gore failed to score. At one point, Gore had two chances, failed, then, and then Allen scored on fourth down. And then another another sequence, Gore had three chances, failed, and then Allen scored on fourth down. And then at another point, Gore was stopped on first and one, and then Allen scored on second down. And then another one of the Josh Allen's touchdowns last year, Gore had two chances, failed. Allen scored on third down. So basically the whole point is the Bills do not want to use Allen at the goal line. They have tried to use Frank Gore first, and he just 
plotted, ran into a brick wall, did nothing. Per Michelle, only two of Frank Gore's touchdowns was actually sniped by Josh Allen prior to Gore having a chance. And those touchdowns came in week one and week two. So great stuff there by Michelle. But let's move on to Antonio Gibson. And he's kind of a late-round flyer, making a lot of waves in the expert community right now. He is a converted receiver slash running back, drafted number 66 overall by the Washington, I guess they don't really have a name right now. by the Washington football team. And he was kind of underutilized at Memphis, but he was an electric, dynamic playmaker with the ball in his hands. He averaged 15.6 yards per touch in college. But he was technically a backup at Memphis. Pro Football Focus credits him with 16 broken tackles on 33 carries last year and 17 broken tackles on 38 receptions. So elite tackle-breaking numbers. Nevertheless, his total lack of career production, he only has 77 career offensive touches, makes it really difficult to have a firm grasp on his NFL projection. And this is for a team, obviously, that just probably wanted an offensive weapon. So this is the secret weapon. I mean, their only offensive weapon last year that was even decent was scary Terry McLaurin. But Gibson, I think because of that, has become a really trendy sleeper pick by the experts in drafts because... Washington's backfield is such an enigma. And Ron Rivera has a great front seven on defense. Washington will definitely want to play slow and try to win games with defense. They have a young quarterback still in Dwayne Haskins. The offensive line is definitely concerned, particularly the left side of the offensive line, where they kind of have a blank slate at left tackle now that Trent Williams has gone there and Donald Penn has retired. And then Eric Flowers, the left guard, has departed. He's with Miami now. So their left side is totally vacant. This thing will never hold together. It's just going to be camp competitions. Probably the worst. It is the worst left side in offensive line in the NFL. So that could be potentially damaging for the passing attack and the running attack alike. Nothing. Nothing's wrong. Darius Geis obviously projected to be the starter, but the team has never really shown an interest in using him in the receiving game. Adrian Peterson's also there. Peyton Barber's there. I don't think Peterson is going to be a big factor as long as Geis is healthy, but Geis hasn't proven he can do that yet. He has not proven he can stay healthy at this level. He needs some milk! Again, Peyton Barber's there. Bryce Love is also there. It's unclear where Bryce Love is from a health standpoint. I don't really think he's on the fantasy radar right now. Washington's offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, Scott Turner, son of North Turner, has a very fantasy-friendly offense for running backs. Historically, the Turners have used one back, and Ron Rivera has made the comparison to Christian McCaffrey. He's compared Antonio Gibson to Christian McCaffrey. And he called it a great scheme fit for Scott Turner. Again, this is pretty high draft capital, 66 overall, for such a raw offensive weapon. So I do think that's the allure from the experts, is that you know they could see him as a pass-catching role. Maybe he gets more involved. For a coordinator who's always used one running back, and has done so very successfully. So in theory, if he can beat out Darius Geis, then you have a potential league winner on your hands. But based on limited usage as a pure running back in college, I strongly question whether Gibson can just morph into an every-down running back. I do see Washington trying to use him more as a passing-down complement to Darius Geis, who I think Washington will want to preserve because of his injury history. I think he'll be on the fantasy radar by season's end, Gibson will. And he's got the look of a playmaker with the ball in his hands on film. And Washington is short on those. But overall, Washington's inept offense is kind of what's steering me away. He's worth a shot in the dark. He's worth a flyer. But the cost is getting a little, it's getting a little pricey for him. The experts are really all over this guy. He's a sleeper. And I think the offensive line and Washington's horrible offense is going to make his transition from being a backup Memphis offensive weapon to an actual NFL running back. I think it's going to make that transition very difficult. So lastly, the Packers drafted Boston College running back A.J. Dillon with the 62nd overall pick in the 2020 draft. This was after they selected Aaron Rodgers' successor, Jordan Love. So the first 
pick that they really spent to upgrade their offense as a skill position was the six foot, 247 pounder. He's such a bruising running back. He kind of reminds a lot of people of Derrick Henry. He had elite athleticism in at the shown at the combine, 97th percentile uh, adjusted spark athleticism. He ran a four five three forty, 41 inch vert. His tape, as suggested by a lot of NFL film gurus, was not very promising. He's a kind of a punishing power back, but he rarely broke off big runs, and he only caught 21 career passes. It is worth noting that he's PFF's second highest graded running back in 2019, and it's also worth noting Scott Barrett at Scott Barrett DFB, FantasyPoints.com. He says the NCAA running back leaders in yards in rushing yards per game between 2000 and 2020. Number one, Jonathan Taylor. We just mentioned that at 150 yards a game. Number two, LaMichael James, 137 rushing yards a game. Number three, Adrian Peterson, 130. Number four, Ray Rice, 129. Number five, A.J. Dillon, 125 rushing yards a game. He actually rushed for at least 110 yards and a touchdown in every single game he played last year in college. And again, this is Boston College, so the competition isn't terrific. But it's worth noting that the Packers made this investment likely because Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams, their two running backs, are in contract years. This is the final year of their contract. And Aaron Jones was phenomenal last season. Jones had 19 regular season touchdowns on 285 touches. A.J. Dillon could cut into that total. A.J. Dillon's definitely a reason that I would be a little nervous about drafting Aaron Jones. I'm not sure A.J. Dillon's going to have enough standalone value for me to you know, say, you know, let's all go address, aggressively draft him because there's also Jamal Williams there too. And Jamal Williams held his own last year. 17th highest graded running back by pro, 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 pro football focus. 4.3 yards a carry last year. He was also used in the passing game. He had five receiving touchdowns last year, Jamal Williams did. Now, his snap counts faded down the stretch. And if I had to guess, A.J. Dillon optimally is going to play that Jamal Williams role which is not a terrible role, by the way. I mean, Jamal Williams was not as bad as a fantasy option as a lot of people may recall last year. However, it's tough to foresee A.J. Dillon being anything more, in, at least in year one, as a compliment to Aaron Jones, who's the superior back and who's the pass-catching running back and who also had a nose for the end zone last year. So even despite A.J. Dillon's size, Aaron Jones was amazing in the red zone last year. So I don't know if Matt LaFleur is going to want to give that duty to a rookie. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is going to want that as well, although it's proven that Aaron Rodgers' wants are not really a factor anymore in this new regime. Speaking of the new regime, Matt LaFleur, he coached Derrick Henry last year in Tennessee. Now, he was kind of infamous for not giving Derrick Henry the full workload and, and working Derrick Henry as a, as a running back by committee with Deion Lewis kind of splitting the carries pretty evenly there. And maybe that's what we'll see out of A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones. That would be tragic for Aaron Jones, but that would help with A.J. Dillon. It is also worth mentioning that when Matthew Barry asked him at the Combine whether he foresees Aaron Jones having that lead back role, he mentioned that he likes having three reliable running backs. Three. Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, and A.J. Dillon might be all getting touches. And again, that would not be optimal for fantasy football purposes there. But Scott Barrett lays out a good point here. One final note on A.J. Dillon. The three most predictive combine numbers for a fantasy running back are weight-adjusted 40-yard dash time, vertical jump, and broad jump. And among all combine running backs since 2000, A.J. Dillon ranks 95th percentile in weight-adjusted 40, 98th percentile in vertical, and 99th percentile in broad jump. So Scott Barrett of FantasyPoints.com makes a good argument for maybe taking a last-round flyer on A.J. Dillon and hoping that being an elite athletic prospect can allow him to overtake, you know, a jag runner like Jamal Williams. I definitely think the draft capital is worth noting. And A.J. Dillon is definitely somebody that I'm interested in as like a final round dart throw. Definitely a name you would want to file way away later on in your drafts. All right, let's get to today's nugget of the show, and that is involving the New England Patriots defense. That's right, we're going defense slash special teams. First mention of that 
in the Fantasy Law Guy podcast history, the New England Patriots defense in the first eight games scored 165 fantasy points last year. Remember how dominant they were. They were one of fantasy's MVP through eight games last year, 20.62 points per game. In the final eight games, however, stark drop-off. 60 fantasy points scored compared to the 165 fantasy points in the first eight games. 60 fantasy points scored in the final eight games. And instead of 20.62 points per game, 7.5 points per game. Only 7.5 points per game in their second half of the season. The New England Patriots defense was DST 12 from week 9 onwards. They ranked defense number 12 from week 9 onwards. So keep that in mind if you're trying to go New England Patriots defense early this season. Although there is one saving grace. I guess I'll give you a bonus nugget here. The New England Patriots defense has been a top 10 defensive unit in fantasy for seven of the last eight seasons. And that, or I should say those, are your fantasy nuggets of the day. All right, that'll conclude today's episode. If you like what you heard today, please, please subscribe to this podcast. Give me a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify if you love what you heard. Your support with that kind of stuff is extremely important, and I would appreciate you greatly. You can follow me on Instagram at Fantasy Law Guy, and you can pose your fantasy questions, and I will answer them on this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. See ya. See ya.